Papa to read verses 1 through 17. We've already read them once in our responsive reading, but I want to be that redundant today and read it again. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. Hear the word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Puts on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, as I've mentioned, I've been circling this passage for quite some time. Um, uh, circling in the sense that it, it, it seems to all hold together. It's one of these great sort of summary passages uh, in the Bible that speaks to us in a very limited amount of words, a great deal, speaks to us as who we are in Christ and what he has done for us. It starts out by letting us know that it is Christ who has died, and when he died, we died with him. And Christ who's risen, and when he rose, we rose with him. Thus he has taken care of for us, and we in him sin, its penalty and its ultimate power in our lives. And so we're to live in such a way that seeks him and him alone. And we're to live in such a way that puts off everything that's inconsistent with him. As we've read these words of, of putting away all that is immoral and impure and putting away anger. And we know too that we're to put on then that which is of Christ we see here in verse 12. And we see that it's all about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus most explicitly because we realize that it's because of what he's done that we are who we are. It's because of his, his death and resurrection. It's because of his, his life and ascension that, that we are who we are. We see that here. There's mention, too, of the Father in the, the last verse, verse 17. It says that we're to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so we're to give thanks to the Father through the Son, Indeed, we see um, an allusion to the work of our Heavenly Father as well in verse 12 when he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And we read that word chosen. We know it's the Father who has chosen us 
to be in Christ. And he's done that before the foundations of the world. And so this is a celebration of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Though Spirit not mentioned directly here, everything about this passage speaks to us of the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who takes this work of Christ and applies it to us. He's the one who's come, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, to to glorify Christ, to show us who he is, to bring him to light, that we would know Christ. He, He changes our hearts. He opens us to him. He gives us faith to believe, enables us by his strength and indwelling presence to walk in Christ. And so it's about the Spirit too, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's who we are because of God. And it's who we're to be and how we're to, to live this passage. So it's one of these passages that's, that's a deep summary for us on, how, on who we are and how we're to live. I must say, too, that it doesn't surprise me that I've been circling so long when I thought to pick up Colossians. Two thoughts came to me. One, it's very dense. I'll be here forever. Two, I'll never get out of chapter three. Uh, because I've been reading this chapter at least all my adult life. I trust I read it as a child, too. Uh, I've read it, I bet, hundreds of times. And each time I read it, I realize that it quiets my soul. It quiets my soul in the sense that it humbles me because I realize there's so much more to living this life as a follower of Christ than I know and that I live. It quiets my soul because I realize that all really is of Christ, that he is to be my whole focus for he's my life. It quiets my soul because in one sense, everything that here seems, seems so surreal, if you will, and so unattainable, but in the other Side, it seems so close and so touchable and so necessary and so right at my fingertips. So it quiets my soul and it causes me to spin and spin and spin and circle and circle and circle and think and think and think. One expression that I think is at the heart of what I've read this morning comes really from verse 4. I've mentioned it before in one way. I want to highlight it today, perhaps in another. Just this expression, Christ who is your life, I realize I've just hijacked that from its context, the whole context of that sentence. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul's point is that Christ is your life, and you'll see that really. You'll see it ultimately when... uh, he comes in glory because you'll be with him and, and, and then it'll all be clear. You'll see that your life really is in him, hidden with Christ in God. But that expression, Christ is my life, what's it really mean? Uh, I think this first, that Christ is the very source of our life. For a call to worship this morning. I read from John chapter 1. I do that often. It's, again, a focus, a centering passage for us on who Jesus is. But you might remember John chapter 1 and verse 4, this sentence, in him that is in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. We realize that there's no real life apart from Jesus, and everything that isn't life is death. So there's only death apart from Jesus. If you think about that, 
that those who aren't in him, that those who don't know him, that those who don't belong to him are dead. They're breathing, perhaps, though still alive in that sense. Before we came to faith in Christ, we were dead, the scripture says, dead in our trespasses and sins. There was not real life in us because life only comes from Jesus. And this life is what the Bible refers to as eternal life. Yes, it means it does go on forever, but it's more than that. Eternal in the sense that it's the very life that comes from God to us. Notice, familiar verse in John chapter 3, verse 16. Actually, verse 15 is really a great verse too. We just always skip that. Verse 15 says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So don't think it's just a John 3, 16 thing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There's life in Christ, in him, and in him, of course, alone. In in chapter 4, in verse 14, you might remember Jesus is meeting with this woman at the well, uh, this woman who knows herself to be one who's in her own words, a sinner. And Jesus comes to her and he speaks to her about life. He says this in verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, that is the water that was in the well, the literal water that was there, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So again, there's only life in Jesus, but there is indeed life in him that removes, takes us from death. Chapter 5 of John's Gospel, verse 21, Jesus is speaking. He says it like this. He says, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he wills. Then in verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And you see, there's something about death and judgment that go together here. And something about believing in Jesus that causes us to escape that judgment and even death in that sense. That we might, in fact, have life, have this eternal life. Later on in chapter 5, verse 39 Jesus is speaking to a group of people. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. He says, you're you're reading in the scriptures, but you're missing the point. You're not seeing it. It's not being illuminated to you. So we pray that the Holy Spirit will give us light so we can see. It's not been illuminated. They can't see Jesus all through the scripture. He says, so, so you should read that and come to me. And when you come to me, then you will have, you will find, I will give you life, he says uh, to them. Then in John in chapter 6, we read of this life that is in him. Verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In other words, there is no life apart from me. You must feed upon me to have life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so there's water that leads to life. There's bread that leads to living. And that all comes in and through and by Jesus. Verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, 
but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. So there's a sense of being raised to life in Jesus, and only by and through him. Verse 47 of chapter 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. It's a present tense. It's a now thing that finds its fruition in the coming of Jesus. He says, your, your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that come down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, Jesus says. He will give himself so that all who believe in him because of the giving of himself will have this life. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you'll have no life in you. And here he's using eating and drinking as a metaphor for believing. Unless you believe in me, you'll have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 63 of John chapter 6. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, he says. The very life that comes from God. Verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Jesus had asked, if they still want to follow. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You've the words of eternal life. And we've believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. Jesus goes on, and John records it, John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You'll see it, you'll be in it, you will live, you will, you will walk. And then John chapter 10, and verse 10, Jesus again speaking. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and may have it abundantly. Then in chapter 11 and verse 25, Jesus speaks of the life that's from him as well. This is on the occasion of his friend Lazarus dying. He meets with Martha, Lazarus' sister, and he says to her, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Well, in one sense, even though we believe in him, we'll die physically. But he's talking about a death and a life that's beyond that, an existence that's either an existence in death or an existence in life. Because if you believe in me, this existence will be real life and it will go on for all of, all of eternity. John chapter 14 and verse 6, again Jesus speaking. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This, this life comes from Jesus, comes as you Received from the Father, you're united to Him, restored to the Father by way of Jesus, His way. He's the reliable one, He's the truth. And He, in fact, is the life. John 17, Jesus praying to His Father. Middle of verse 1 Father, the hour has come, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life 
to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus has authority to give life. Finally, this summary from the Apostle John in chapter 20 and verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So when we read that expression, Christ is my life, what do we get from that? We get that he's the very source of our lives, that without him there is no real life. There's only death apart from him. Anyone apart from him is living in death and will live death forever. quiets our souls quiets our souls in the sense we know those who don't know Jesus it quiets our souls because we might remember a time when we didn't know Jesus and just to think of that existence there which was death then to think that now we sit as those who know him we've received life from him and all of this life comes from what he has done we see that in this chapter in Colossians. In fact, it's because of the death of Christ and the rising of Christ. It's because of the very life of Christ that we have this life in us. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden, God created Adam. The scripture says he breathed into him life. He became a living soul. But something happened after that. And what happened after that, that that caused death to come was rebellion against God. Because you see, real life is lived in the image of God. That's real life. Death is living life that isn't in the image of God. And what's taking place now in the course of our life, because of the work of Christ, is that we are now being conformed to the image of Christ. That's the goal of our life. You see, Jesus is not only the source of this life, but but he's the very goal of our life as well. Because what's taking place now in us is that we're being conformed to his image. Because the work of Christ has caused our old self to be put aside and has caused a new self to be born in us. Notice how he puts it in the middle of verse, well, I'll begin with verse 9, the sentence. He says, do not lie to one another. This is Colossians chapter 3. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. He speaks of an old self and a new self. An old self past, new self that's present. Because of the work of Christ, this old self has, has been put aside. What is that old self? How is that old self understood? How is that old self defined? Well, throughout the scripture, that old self, and even here, that old self is defined in relation to sin and death. In relation to sin, in that the old self is that old self that's united to Adam, our first father, if you will, Adam, united to him, in sin, so that everything was true about that was true about Adam in his sin is true about us. That is, we come under its penalty and under its power. That's the old self. Now, because of Jesus, 
of how miraculous and amazing this is for us to think, that old self has been put aside. And now we're the new self. Because this new self is also defined in relation to sin and death. But this new self is united to Jesus in his death and resurrection. Therefore, this new self is this self that has died and risen. Thus, the penalty and power of sin is broken. We no longer live under sin's penalty. We no longer live in its power. That's who we now are. Old self gone, new self is us, the real us. And it's this new self that has life. It's this new self that's now being renewed to the image, into the image of Christ, the image of its creator. And this new self that will ultimately be perfected in the image of its creator when ultimate life comes. Death is living as one who is not in the image of God, whose image, the image of God, has been so broken that there is no real life. And a day will come when that eternal existence, which is described in the scripture as hell, will be a place where the image of God is not. Glory, this new earth upon which we live after the coming of Christ, is where the image of God will be everywhere, most especially in us, real life. So the point is, if we want to live life, we must know Christ, trust him, have received life from him. He is our life, and and we need thus to know that we are being renewed in his image, which means if Christ is our life, We must put aside everything that's contrary to him. And we must put on everything that's consistent with him. Because as we do, we're just shedding death. And as we do, we're putting on that which is real life. and belongs to him. Now you may think that you live a rather schizophrenic life. Because we feel so much as if we're really still under the power of sin. But the scripture continues to tell us we're not, we're not two selves, we're just one. And that new self, that, that the self that we are is the self that is new, not the self that is old. Now still sin exists and sin's presence is still here. But the difference between the old and new doesn't regard the presence of sin, but its penalty and power. And so the newness of the new self is that we're no longer under sin's penalty. We need to live under that guilt. So as we've said before, the gospel informs our life in such a way that it gives us confidence to tackle it and to face it because we know we're forgiven it. And so we need to live under its guilt. We need to avoid it. We neither at least avoid the truth of it. We can admit it and confess it and fight it as well because it no longer enslaves us as it once did. And so now in this new self, so though sin still is present among us, in us, the difference is that now we can be forgiven it and fight it, and thus we can grab a hold of, as Paul writes to Timothy, as I read for our offering this morning, grab a hold of that life which is really 
really life. And notice how Paul puts it then in verse 11. He says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in and all. In other words, nothing of our past, whether we were born Greek or Jew, Greek with wisdom, Jew with great religious heritage, as, these, as we read that, we think of the Jew of the Old Testament, the ancient Israel Jew who had the great heritage of the oracles of God and the miracles of God and the history and all of that, the very word of God and the prophets and the priests and the sacrifices and the kings and all that. That's not what it's about. It's not about whether one is circumcised or uncircumcised in that old covenant or out of that old covenant. Barbarian, Scythian, a Scythian or Scythian was a barbarian that was also a slave. Slave or free. It doesn't matter if your social standing, your education, your, your wealth, uh, how you're perceived in the community, any of that. None of that matters at this point because it's all about Christ. He's the only one who gives life. You don't get life because you were born a Greek. You don't get life because you were born a Jew. You don't get life because you were born free. You don't get life because you were born a slave. You don't get life because you were born rich. You don't get life because you're poor. You don't get life because you're well-educated or not or well-considered or, or politically connected. That's not how you get life. It's because Christ is all. And for all who have life, he is in all. Not only that, we see verse 12, where the apostle writes that we're to put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That expression, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. I believe the apostle puts that there, that little trilogy, that little, those three expressions together, first chosen ones to remind us that this really is God's work, really is God's initiation, really is something that God has done, not we ourselves. It comes from him. Christ is our life, beginning and end. He's the source of our life. He's the goal of our lives. And that is why God has chosen us. The very, very familiar uh, passage to us in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's real life. It says, here's, here's what I'm doing, God says, choosing you in Christ so that all the blessings of Christ will be yours. And I'm doing that before the foundations of the world, before time begins. So you'll know it wasn't your will. You'll know it was mine. So you'll know that it wasn't because of your goodness, but it was because of mine. You'll know it wasn't because of your merit, but because of Christ's merit. You'll know that. So I'm telling you now. didn't have to tell you this. You wouldn't have known. And I'm telling you this now, before the creation of the world, I did this, chose you in Christ, and then I have a goal for you, that you'd be holy and blameless. That is, that you'd have real life, because there's no life apart from holiness. So you'll have real life. And I know there are times when we chafe 
against that word chosen, raises questions in us. But really the antidote for that chafing uh, is humility. To realize that this is something that I did not do, but God did. Chosen holy, he says. Set apart to give my blessing upon you. And beloved, that is, that you would be a recipient of the love of Christ. A kind of love that cannot be separated from us and him. That nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because it was God initiated, God done. Christ is our life. He's the one who has set us apart, made us holy in his sight, loved us in a special way in Jesus The scripture said that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, that's true. And because we've been chosen in him before the foundations of the world, he's brought that to us in a very personal way that we might know that we've been loved by him and thus we're secure in him. Christ is our life. What what are the implications of this, I listed 15, and I'm not done. But let me list these implications of the very fact that Christ is our life, first of all. Christ is the source of our lives. As I mentioned, death had enslaved us because of sin, but Christ broke it, thus gives us life And a day will come when we'll be free, not only from the guilt of our sin, not only the power of our sin, but the presence of it as well. Christ being my life means that he's the very focus of my life. I'm to be aware of him all the time. Shouldn't be a moment that goes by. There's not some sense of me that's aware that Christ is my life, whether I'm at work, whether I'm at play, whether I'm at my computer, whether I'm at the television, whether I'm reading a book, whether I'm reading a magazine, whether I'm talking to somebody, whether I'm thinking about a particular occasion, whether I'm in the midst of a particular experience to realize that Christ is my life. And I'm aware of that, that everything about me is because of him. Christ is my life so that when I sin, I realize that he brings me forgiveness. Christ is my life so that when I'm in need, I'm aware of the fact that I'm not alone, but I can pray because I have a way to the Father through him. That I don't come on my own merit, I don't come on my own goodness, I come through Christ in his name and thus I'll be received by God because I come in Christ the Beloved. And thus he loves me, God does, the Father does, in and through Christ. So I know that when I'm in need, I can bear my soul to God and that I know that he will hear me because because I'm in Christ, I am his child. I belong to God. So I can come to him even in my need through praying. Since Christ is my life, I know that when I'm confused, that I can seek God. I can seek him in the scripture. I can seek him in prayer. I can seek him through others who know him. When I'm confused, I can seek God in prayer. I know that because Christ is my life. 
because Christ is my life. I know that when I'm hurt, that Christ has been hurt. And I know that he who is my life forgives. Thus I know that I can forgive because Christ is my life. Since Christ is my life, uh, I, I, I realize this, that when I wonder what I should, should do, I'm able to think of Christ, the very model of his life, his teachings, his commands. Since Christ is my life, I know then what I see, I know that when I see something in my own life that is not consistent with who he is, then I must put it off. Because he's my life. And there's no life in the things that are attached to me that aren't of him. Those things are attached really to death. So I must put them off. Christ is my life so that when I'm arrogant, I'm humbled to know that without him there is no life at all. And that he being my life is a complete and utter gift of God. Nothing that I thought of, nothing that I thought up, nothing that I initiated, nothing that I achieved, but was given to him, given to me by him. Since Christ is my life, I realize that when I have an inclination to think another, to be unworthy to be a follower of Christ, I realize that it is Christ who makes us worthy to follow him. Since Christ is my life, I realize that when I will face death, I know that I shall live. Since Christ is my life, I realize when I face difficulty, I know that I can walk through it because God's purpose for me will be fulfilled. For such difficulty has come that I might be conformed to the image of Christ. Since Christ is my life, I realize that there is only real life in being conformed to his image. It comes nowhere else. I should seek thus Christ that I may be like him. Since Christ is my life, I realize that I'm in process, that my life is being renewed in his image. And thus I must be diligent with every ounce of my being to be conformed to his image. And at the same time, I must be patient. Since Christ is my life, I realize that my life is eternal. It can't be taken from me. My hope is not in me, but in him. My life is secure. For my having this life doesn't depend upon my background, my race, my station in life, how I'm known by others. But it depends upon God. Christ is my life. And not only that, I realize a number of other things. They're, they're listed here in this passage that, that as one whose life is Christ, that I must put on compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. I must bear with one another, with others. I must forgive. I must be one who loves. I must be one for whom the peace of Christ rules. I, I must be one who's thankful. I must be one in whom the word of Christ abides, lives. I must be one who is an encourager 
an admonisher of others in love. I must be one who is thankful. I must be one who does everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. I must be one who in every station of life in which I find myself, I must be a follower of Christ. Well, that's all to come. But let, please, this expression feed your souls, let it inform your decisions, let it work in your relationships, let it work in your emotions as you deal with various circumstances, that Christ is your life. Let's pray. Father, I pray for me and for us that we would never in our thoughts be far from this one, that Christ is in fact our life, the very source of our life. And that, Father, that we can live in him, from him, through him, and to him in all things. So we pray that you would indeed be with us, God. Father, I pray that you would be especially close in these days to those who grieve. I pray for Carol Agu and her sons and their extended family as they grieve the loss of Carol's husband and the boy's father as they grieve the loss of Dan. Father, be with them in these days. It's been, I know, a long and arduous and exhausting yet faith-filled journey in these days for them. So I pray, God, for Carol and her family that you would be very close to them and bless them deeply. Help them grieve well, trusting in you, grieving as not as those who are without hope. Father, we continue to pray for Chad and Tiffany and their family just in their grief these days over the loss of this child. It was unknown to them, but yet still in ways incomprehensible attached to them. So I pray for them. Pray for those who are recovering from surgery, Mary Webb, especially we pray for her. We pray for Denny Chadwick as he recovers as well. Give him strength. Help him, God. Father, we pray for those who are in missions that they would know firsthand Christ is their lives. They would know him as the source, the strength, the very goal of their lives. Pray for Kelly and Marietta Liebengood as they're in Texas this weekend looking for a place to live as Kelly begins his work at Laterno University there soon. So be with them. Thank you for being faithful to them through their days as missionaries in Costa Rica. Thank you for being faithful to them in their days in Scotland as Kelly pursued this degree. We pray that you would continue to be faithful to them as Kelly teaches at Laterno still their hearts, their eyes focused upon Central America and their great desire to minister there to the people in that part of the world. Father, we pray for birthright, this great work in our own community. We pray that you would grant grace to all, that they would be of great help to women facing pregnancies of, that they themselves are questioning, and we pray that you would protect the lives of the unborn. 
and the hearts and souls of those moms and dads. Father, for Jeff and Rebecca Burgess, we pray that you would be with them as they are at work this summer, and we pray that their preparations for the fall will be fresh and good. Father, we pray for us all that we may be those who make disciples of others. For Christ is our life. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. Um, Our response to the benediction is that we shall sing together. So please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And together let us sing. Mm -hmm.